0: And now, it's time for Dr. Bill, your Radio MD.
1: Good
2: morning, everybody. This is Dr. Bill, your Radio MD, coming at you on 860 AM, The Answer. And we are having a radio show this morning. By the way, you can reach me 9 to 10 AM live every Sunday, Eastern Standard Time at DrBillRadioMD.com. Click Listen Live. If you've got a headset or speakers on your computer, you got me. I'm also on air at AM 860 in the Tampa Bay area. And you can reach me through the website of the station, AM860TheAnswer.com. We're an iHeart station, so it's all good. You can get me anywhere on your smartphone. And. This is Talk Radio Interactive. We're at 877 That's 877 8600 And so here we go. Big news week, as usual, with the Trump administration. Things are happening at a breakneck pace. The caravan is stuck at the southern border. The trade war between China and the United States is in a temporary truce. Uh, the fake news is rampant, and there are calls for control of social media's news reporting, and there's a lot of, of legislation being passed around the world, not in the United States, thankfully, to try and control and contain, quote, quote, fake news on social media. So there's censorship going on. Oh, my. Oh, my. Well, the the recent caravan headed toward our southern border got me thinking about the movement of human beings around our planet. My understanding is that most of the people in the, carav- in the caravan are from Honduras, and Honduras has some social problems, which is causing upheaval. I guess there's a lot of crime and uh, economic disparity. Now, we heard about a couple of child deaths reported in the caravan as folks entered the United States seeking asylum. I guess two of the kids died. And the infant death rate in Honduras is about 30 per thousand, so I don't know if there's anything unexpected here. You've got a group of 10,000 people, and so far only two recorded infant deaths, at least on this side of the border. So I don't think this is a big deal. And I would gather information and hazard a guess that birth and death rates remain constant as a large group of people migrate, probably goes up some, I would think, because of the lack of uh, facilities and resources. But assuming that they're being taken care of as they travel through Guatemala and Mexico and that they have some basic, uh, health care and sanitation, uh, I would guess that the death rate is going to be about the same. And you know, the human diaspora itself goes back a few hundred thousand years. Uh, from from what science has deduced, it all began in Africa with the first mass migrations inside of Africa. And then around 70,000 years ago, the first diaspora out of Africa uh, happened. And this followed, from what I can tell, it followed the Arabian Sea and the Indian Ocean down into the uh, Asian subcontinent of what we know as India. And at that time it was an ice age, so the water levels were lower, there was a lot of ocean water locked up in ice, and the land bridge between India and Australia was present. The The island nation of Indonesia had a lot of, of connections between the islands then, so it was easier for people to migrate down into Australia. And the Australian Aborigines are some of the oldest peoples that have migrated out of Africa into the rest of the world, and so they go back fifty, sixty thousand 60,000 years, which is a long time. I mean, that's that's a long time to have moved out of Africa and established a presence in Australia, and they were isolated because after the Ice Age ended, the water levels came back up, and... Australia was isolated, and they survived in a very harsh climate and adapted very well. So we do adapt, and we do figure out how to make it and to get there and to get back again. Now, the second big diaspora happened about 50,000 years ago out of Africa, and these populations collided with Neanderthals and another species of humans known as the Denisovan and we know this because of the genetics. The geneticists have tracked our movements around the planet by looking at our genetic material. Now, the One of the problems with genetic material up until the technology got a little bit better is that the DNA inside of our cells is primarily located in the nucleus or the center of the cell, which is like an area within the cell that is specific for the Material that tells our cells what they are, what to do, um, how to act and react, how to divide, so on and so forth. Now, we also have what we call mitochondria, which are little organelles within our cells, and they probably invaded eons ago into uh, animal and plant cells, and they provide energy for the cells. The animal cells have an abundance of, of these little mitochondria, and they have some of their own DNA material, so they reproduce as well when the cells divide. And this material lasts longer, and it's better preserved because it's inside of another cell membrane, and it's protected. So we can track this over eons, over thousands of generations, all the way back to uh, sub-Saharan Africa, the Horn of Africa, wherever, uh, wherever we think we originally came from. Somewhere in Africa anyway. And this material is passed on from mother to children. The guys don't pass this on because the sperm is just a packet of genetic material. It doesn't have any organelles in it, whereas the ovum, the female egg is a complete cell with these little organelles called mitochondria. So we can follow the bloodlines of people from our very basic roots in Africa all the way to present-day Tampa Bay, Florida, if you want to. And you can even send your blood off and have it tested, and they'll tell you with good accuracy your genetic lineage going back several hundred years And and that's pretty neat in and of itself. So we have been able to track the movement of peoples around the Earth, the diaspora. We've been able to discern that there was interbreeding, intermarriage between the other species of humans, the Neanderthal and the Denisovans, and that we even have some of that genetic material within our makeup, And so, this is a fascinating and relatively new discovery, just within this century that we've been able to make that. And we have to ask ourselves is it any different now than it was 50,000, 70,000 years ago? Are people moving for any new or different reasons? Or are we still doing the same things that we've been doing since we first? started hiking around Africa and looking for new opportunities. I mean, let's face it. There was always love and war, cooperation and necessity, trade and curiosity. Parents wanted better for their children. Sons wanted to prove their worth to their fathers or get away from their fathers, as is my case. And daughters wondered what their babies would look like. So the human diaspora has progressed and it continues to. And so we have, again, a movement of people from Central America into North America, into Mexico and the United States. They're trying to get in. And we have to decide what we can handle, how much we can take, and how will we handle people coming in. We have laws that provide asylum for those who seek asylum and, meet the requirements. And we have to be able to vet those people, we have to be able to screen them. And we have to be able to determine who is worthy of being in our country and who isn't. And of course you need a border and you need border agents and security to enact all of that. And so we've got a big fight going on between the Democrats and and the Trump administration as to whether or not there'll be adequate funding to enact all of the necessary steps to ensure that we have a safe border, that we have a secure border. So the fight is on, and we're now in a government shutdown, and this has impacted not only our daily lives, but also that of international trade the farmers who sell soybeans and wheat to the Chinese are in a conundrum because the data that comes out of the Department of Agriculture, the numbers are kept by the Department of Agriculture as to how much grain is being shipped back and forth across the ocean and being sold is not available because that department shut down. And so the Chicago Board of Trade is in the dark as well, and that has to do with futures, and the futures are a way of stabilizing prices so that if you think that there's going to be less soybeans this year produced or grown or harvested, and more demand, then the future price of those soybeans will be greater than last year's. So you may say, well, I'm going to make a bid on this, and let's say soybeans was going for $5 a pound last year, and now you think it's going to go for 6 or 7 so you put a, a bid in and you say, I'll buy your crop of soybeans or I'll buy your supply out of this regional silo. I want to have the first bid on that, so I'll give you a million dollars in advance. And then they say, okay, but you have to pay us $7 a pound or whatever. And that's how the futures are traded. And then you make come out, Smelling like a rose, or if the price of soybeans falls for some reason, that there's a bumper crop that no one anticipated, or the demand in China drops, then you may be stuck with soybeans that are worth less than you agreed to pay for it. So you may end up paying $7 a pound, but only be able to sell it for five or six, so you lose. So it's a way of buffering the price, and that has to be made up somewhere. And it's made up by commodities traders, and people who invest in commodity trading. So the shutdown is affecting many aspects of our lives, known and unknown to us. And we don't know for certain what the soybean market is doing. And you say, well, what do I care what the soybean market is doing? Well, the staples that we export is still one of the largest portions of our of our export economy. We export soybeans, we export energy, we export wheat, we export a number of items that we don't think of on a day-to-day basis because it's not something that is within our immediate domain of, of consciousness. We're not a big soybean consuming country, although it's grown over the years, and we take for granted that We have enough oil and gas available, so it doesn't really matter to us where it's coming from as long as we don't have to pay too much. And not everyone realizes that we're now an energy producer and not just an energy consumer. So all of these facts and figures are important. They're important to the uh, people who make economic decisions, to the Chicago Board of Trade, to the stock markets, and, and the stock markets are in a conundrum as well because they're they're flying blind. They don't know what exactly is going on in the economy when the government shuts down and a lot of the data that is produced by the government is not available for the, the traders and the stockbrokers and the investors and you and me to see. And all of this because of the human diaspora, people trying to get out of one part of the world and come into another. Fascinating. I doubt it was much different back then. Just not as many people, a little sparser population. But certainly impacted economies, however they were run at that time. And here I am, the product of Middle Eastern Semites and Northern Europeans. Uh, The collision of the Slovaks and the Norsemen, the Germans, the Teutons, and because uh, my mother was from Poland. And so I've got this mishmash of blood. Now, I'm going to guess that the Semitic side of the family probably dates back 50,000, 60,000 years from one of the uh, earliest of the diasporas out of Africa, because the Middle East has been settled. It was the original crossroad for the second diaspora out of Africa 50,000, 60,000 years ago. And people have lived there for millennia. They have populated that area, and the genetics go way back, way back. And so I'm guessing that that is probably one of the most stable populations, but also one of the most preyed-upon populations. The Semitic tribes in the in the Middle East have seen conflict and war since the beginning of humanity's travels out of Africa and into the rest of the world. So this is a a fascinating investigation for me, and it's just as fascinating to look at my wife and her her people who have populated Northeastern Asia, Japan, Korea, the Americas, and we know that The Mongolians sent a big contention to North America, which ended up making its way into South America, and we have the quote-unquote American Indians, and other populations have also interbred to a certain extent, and then with the influx of the Europeans into the Americas, there's been interbreeding with the Europeans. And and certainly in the eastern United States, you're going to have a hard time finding someone who is pure American Indian. Now, you can go out to the West Coast, and I've talked about this before, and and some of the coastal tribes have refused to interbreed with the the, uh, Europeans, and they look exactly like my wife. But any diaspora or traveler movement's not without risk, and so knowingly or unknowingly, a lot of the people that joined this caravan out of Honduras and up towards our border were putting themselves at risk and there was no certainty that they would get in. And we now see that they're not welcome at our southern border. And there's that risk of also spreading disease within the population and and the usual diseases and, and deaths that occur will continue to occur. And we don't know because we don't have statistics from the other side of the border, the Mexican side, exactly what's going on and how the health is. We know that some of the people are turning around and heading back. Others will stop in Mexico and settle there. And the demographics of the country they came from are quite different than ours. They're largely Mesoamericans, American Indians, who interbred with the Europeans and so they're largely Indian stock there's very little uh, black or semitic blood in in Honduras and one of the doctors at the hospital is from Honduras interesting guy he's one of the intensivists and I asked him I said what's the big problem he said crime it's it's just a crime ridden country if you go to a bar you're liable to get shot And so lawlessness is part of the the culture there, according to my friend. Of course, although they think that they are poor, their standard of living has come up significantly over the past 50 years. Their lifespan has gone from the 40s into the 70s, and their health care has improved remarkably. There's urbanization. And certainly, there's enough money and opportunity for people to saddle up and head north. So, there's some good things there. But uh, I uh, have long been of the opinion that rather than invite the whole world to the United States, we should be making every effort possible to help people where they are, to stay where they are, and to improve their lot where they are. And this goes back to what I said last week, that like it or not, we're going to have to be the policemen of the world. Directly or indirectly, we're going to be involved. Yes, we may turn our area of control in Syria over to the Turks, but I guarantee you that the deal is that we will be supplying the Turks with weapons and uh, with support. And I think we should. And whether you agree or disagree with Turkey, whether you like what Erdogan is doing to the country or dislike it, whether you fear that Turkey will become another Islamic republic rather than remain a secular democracy, is in the short term less important than ensuring that Islamic State And or the Iranians don't take over that area. I mean, these are important facts that we have to consider. We have to weigh one against the other. What is the greater good and what is the greater evil? So we have the caravan stopped at the border. We have people who are honestly seeking asylum and bringing kids in, a couple of child deaths. I don't think that's a big deal. And even the press has not made a huge deal out of that from what I can see. They're more focused on whether or not the president committed a crime. And I guess that his lawyer Cohen is saying that he was instructed by Trump to go to Europe to meet with the Russians prior to the, uh, the election during the primary season and, This is being debunked, Uh, so there's just a ton of, of misinformation out there, and that's another problem that we're going to have to face in the new year is, how do we handle all of this misinformation, and how do we handle freedom of the press? These are all big problems that are confronting us as we work our way into the new year. Now, the commodity traders are in the dark because of the partial government shutdown, and they're unable to see the daily and weekly reports of the agricultural exports that are going to China to see whether or not soybeans are being sold. So the soybeans are being harvested, and they're already purchased because of the futures tradings, somebody has already made a bid on these and they're responsible for this. I had one friend who (coughs) actually started trading when he was in medical school. And I think that he (laughs) bought futures on a bunch of hog bellies and that uh, he couldn't get rid of them. So they were going to deliver several tons of hog bellies to him. And They wanted to know where to store it. Well, of course, I mean, he's a medical school, a residency, and he doesn't have warehouse storage. He doesn't have refrigerated storage anywhere to put all of this. So people do get stuck with this stuff. They do get stuck. And uh, what do you do with all of this? Well, Beijing resumed buying the U.S. cargoes earlier, I believe this month, after we agreed to a, a truce there on, I think it was December 1st in the trade war. But there's still big tariffs on U.S. cargoes in place for goods to go to China. Now, I've been buying some things from China to make my, my toenail uh, gel, which is hopefully gonna, going to cure toenail fungus, and once I get that out in marketing, I'll let you know more about it. But there are large commercial grain merchants who are in the dark, uh, at least from our point of view, they probably have inside information that we don't know. Archer Daniels, Midland, Cargill, and these companies I've mentioned before on the show, and Archer Daniels and Cargill, Cargill and Bunge and the Lewis dreyfus Corporation, these are Four big players in grain exports and they've also big, been big players in the hybridization of seeds so that the crops are more robust and resistant to uh, insect uh, predation and to fungal infections and so on and so forth and that they can uh, produce more per acre and all of this has helped the world to feed itself So our American companies have done great things around the world, but now they're sitting in the middle of a trade war and they're wondering what's going on, at least from what we see. I'm guessing that Archer Daniels Midland and Cargill and these companies have been around for decades and have had close relationships and trade relationships with uh, countries that have been putative enemies of ours, like China and Russia, who we have continued to sell grain to, even in the darkest days of the Cold War, that they have backdoor communication and uh, that they are able to continue to do business in some form or another. But of course, if there's a refusal at the ports of entry in China to allow the grains in, then Archer Daniel and Cargill are are in in a bind as our traders, investors, you and me, Uh, stockholders, pension plans, everybody else. So the trade war does impact us. And the advantages will go to other countries that are producing grains and goods like Australia and Canada. Now we have locked up the Canadians with the new North American trade deal and they have to stick with us when it comes to negotiating with the Chinese and that was part of the trade deal. And you know, that's a good thing. Now, I don't know if there are carve outs. Certainly there, there are that certain things like grains do not fall into this and that the Canadians can sell grain to the Chinese or whoever, but I don't know all the ins and outs of that. I'm guessing that there are some carve outs. Now, The effect of this on our domestic prices is going to be variable. If there's a glut of soybeans because we can't unload them, then soybean prices are going to drop in the United States. So your tofu is going to cost less. So if you're a big tofu guy, you'll be able to... get tofu cheaper. And tofu, although they say it's high in protein, we have to stop and think about the bioavailability of the protein and whether or not it's a complete protein because there are amino acids in meat and dairy products that are not present in tofu that are essential to our health and well-being and our growth. With that, let's go grab an egg and I'm going to get a cup of coffee and we'll be back in a flash. So you hang in there. I'm Dr. Bill, your Radio MD.
0: am hey, 860, the answer. With SRN News,
2: I'm Michael Harrington in Washington. President Trump has faced widespread criticism in the mainstream media over the deaths of two Guatemalan children at the border. But he is blaming Democrats, quote, and their pathetic immigration policies that allow people to make the long trek thinking they can enter our country illegally. Mr. Trump tweeting his comments yesterday at uh, his first on the deaths of an 8-year-old Felipe Gomez Alonso on Christmas Eve and 7-year-old Jacqueline Canal on December the 8th. Meanwhile, the stalemate over the partial government shutdown looks like it is headed into the new year. There have been no signs of substantive negotiations between the president and Democrats so far this weekend. And more than a dozen people are reported to have been killed today in election-related violence in Bangladesh. People across the country at the polls to decide whether to give Prime Minister Sheikh Hassini the third consecutive term. Four six four one one seven two seven three eight four six four one one. Hello, this is Dr. Bill Handelman for our good friends at Tampa Bay Imaging. TBI provides state-of-the-art MRI and CT scanning with the lowest radiation possible. Most insurance plans accepted and self-pay rates are very competitive. TBI is conveniently located in Tampa and St. Pete with evening and weekend appointments. So call TBI today or ask your doctor. In Tampa, call 813-386-3674. St. Pete, call
0: 727-545-9674. The natural habitat of a creepy doll is a horror movie. It can't help being creepy. It's that small, fixed smile and those never closing eyes, always watching you, plotting, which you're imagining. It's mindless. But when the creepy doll hears that Geico not only saves people money, but also gives them easy access to emergency roadside service through an award winning app, it knows you should switch. Because yes, switching to Geico is a no brainer. The only question is how did the creepy doll move from the bedroom to the hallway? I would get out of the house.
1: You're an author writing a Christian book, so you may know this cheery little fact. Old-fashioned publishers reject thousands of manuscripts each year. You know your book is fabulous, but hey, if it's not what a publisher needs, eh, all you need is your book in print. You want it on Amazon. You want to spread the word the way you've written it, so do it. Forget old-fashioned publishing. Publish yourself with 21st Century Christian Publishing at Zulon Press. The same great people who bring you this nifty radio station.
0: Here is your exclusive AccuWeather forecast. A
1: dense fog advisory effect for the morning.
0: Otherwise, today, partly sunny and humid. High getting up to 81. Mainly
1: clear tonight, with areas of fog developing late at night, low 67. Patchy fog continues into the morning. Otherwise, tomorrow, mostly sunny and very warm with a high 80. That's
0: your AccuWeather forecast. I'm Kevin Snyder for AM 860. The answer.
2: And I'm back. This is Dr. Bill, and I guess we got the new year coming, huh? This is New Year's Eve, isn't it, Joe? It is indeed. Oh, my gosh. Can you believe it? We're already done with 2018. And 2019 is right around the corner now. I heard, uh, what's her name? Rebecca Walters? Is she? Walser. Walser. You know, I heard her yesterday. I guess she does a financial show, and uh, she got off on, uh, she was discoursing about the dumbing down of America and the, the uh, educational level of our kids falling. And she referred to an exam that was given in the uh, 19th century to sixth graders or eighth graders who were graduating that they had to pass to get out of that grade and go on to high school or back to the farm or whatever they did. And I, I looked at, at one of these tests because she was saying that that our kids couldn't answer it and, and you know what I couldn't answer it uh, some of this is specific for for the area and here are some of the questions the mathematics the arithmetic questions uh, a wagon box is two feet deep ten feet long and three feet wide how many bushels of, of wheat will it hold well you know what I've never handled a bushel of wheat I didn't grow up on a farm now this is a test in Kansas And so you're going to have to know the cubic feet of a bushel of wheat, and you can quickly calculate the cubic feet of the wagon. Uh, That's 60 cubic feet. So I don't know what a bushel of wheat is, maybe one or two cubic feet. So let's say it's two cubic feet, so it'll hold 30. But if you've never encountered a bushel of wheat and you don't know it, well, how are you going to answer this question? Okay, here's another one. If a load of wheat weighs 3,942 pounds, what is its worth at 50 cents per bushel, deducting 1,050 pounds for the tare? Well, first of all, kids are not going to know what tare is today. They're not going to know uh, how much a bushel of wheat weighs. That, that, I looked it up. It's 60 pounds. So you would have to know all of this to be able to answer these questions. So I think what Rebecca was was saying uh, may have some validity that there are uh, uh, there are attempts to dumb down the population, and certainly the the politics and the sociology has changed in in what the school teachers at public schools want to teach, especially in the coastal states and in the ultra liberal areas. But to say that the kids are dumber or that they know less. I don't think is is necessarily fair. They know it's different. And I, I think that we need to uh, uh, not disparage ourselves, but rather look at what we have, what we're teaching, what the scores are. And by the way, in Florida, the scores have come up nationally. And this is because of the uh, charter schools in part, and also in part because of the push for uh, uh, exams to be administered to the public school kids, and, and I agree with that. And there are a lot of people that don't like that because there are kids that just don't do well on tests. My son is a, is a guy who does not like to take tests, yet uh, he graduated magna cum laude from University of South Florida. Well, he did not go into the sciences because he did not like taking the tests that science put out there. But he's a smart kid. He's got a high IQ. And, and I understand that there are kids that don't do well with tests, but there are opportunities around that as well. So I, I think we have to be careful when we disparage our, our kids and say that they are undereducated compared to kids 100, 125, 150 years ago. I'm not sure that I agree with that. I think that the, that the knowledge base is different. And certainly, my son didn't go to a public school, and he went to a private school, but uh, I know kids that went to the target schools, the uh, schools of excellence and the charter schools, and their kids are just as well-educated and just as smart as my kid is, maybe more so. So that, to me, is not necessarily uh, a good way of looking at whether or not our kids are doing better or worse. I think that we have to put it into the context of the knowledge base that is relevant to our era. Now, there are some U.S. history questions which I think are important and I think people should know about, but some are not. You know, one of the questions on this exam is who were the following? Morris, Whitney, Fulton, Bell, Lincoln, Penn, and Howe. Well, you and I those of us of the baby boomer generation will know who Samuel Morris is because Morris code was still being used when we were kids and young adults. Nobody uses Morris code anymore. So who is Morris? My son wouldn't know who Morris is. He wouldn't know who Whitney is. I mean, the technology has come so far that the cotton gin uh, isn't really relevant to the kids of this generation. Fulton, bell i mean there're no landlines anymore i don't d- joe do you have a, a landline telephone in your house we don't have any
1: it's probably been i mean it's got to be at least 20 years since i've had a landline uh telephone in any capacity
2: yeah i mean you know so, other than
1: work related of course cuz we have special lines here
2: yeah uh, so i mean alexander bell was a great inventor and he was of great interest to the 19th and 20th century but uh, I'm not sure that it's that big of a deal for kids to know who Alexander Bell is. I mean, I'd, I'd rather that they know who Von Neumann is, which hardly anybody knows, and he's the mathematician that put into effect computers, the nuclear era, all of these other things. But uh, you don't hear much about that. Then another person is who is Lincoln, who is Penn, and who is who is Howe? Now, Lincoln, I think the kids should know. Uh, Penn founded Pennsylvania Uh, I'm not sure that that's that big of a deal, Uh, Elias Howe, another inventor. And here's some of the dates that were considered important in the 19th century, late 19th century. What occurred on 1607? Well, I think the kids should know that. Uh, That's Jamestown, 1620, Plymouth Rock, 1800 was the election of, of, uh, um, what's his name, Jefferson and 1849 uh 1865 the end of the civil war so these were probably dates that were important then and and to some extent should be important now but there are a lot of dates that have occurred since then that kids back then didn't have to know they didn't have to know uh armistice day or veterans day they didn't have to know all of these holidays now that we have that they didn't have back then a lot of holidays have been added just in the 20th century and they're they're dates that uh, are important to current history uh, it, it's just not fair to try to uh, compare 19th and 21st century kids knowledge base if you gave a cell phone to a 19th century kid he'd probably throw it away thinking it was some kind of uh, uh, weird alien phenomena. So, but my son, he can take that phone and he can do things with it that that uh, would amaze even aliens who are dropping into the planet to see what we're up to. So I'm not sure that I'm I'm all that uh, enamored with the analogy that that Rebecca gave, and and that's not to say that she's not right. I just think it was the wrong. The wrong analogy to use. Now, I wanted to talk briefly about, with the last few minutes of the show, uh, freedom of speech. Now, this this is something that is becoming a, a big problem because of the, quote, quote, fake news and social media. And, you know, we've got the Europeans now who are censoring, even more so, their press than they have in the past. We in the United States are fairly unique around the world in that we will allow hate speech. We will allow just about anything. And here's the problem. When you start saying, well, we're not going to allow hate speech, and we're not going to allow inflammatory speech, we're not going to allow malicious gossip or defamation of character or insults or cyberbullying or whatever, whatever it is, well, who makes the decision as to what that is? See, that's the problem. Now, people say, well, the president's trying to trying to uh, censor the news. No, he's not. He hasn't gone after anybody. He's just saying it's fake news, and he's fighting back with news. <laughs> you know, he's using the media and the social media in particular to counter what he's hearing and what he disagrees with and what he takes personally and saying that it's fake news. Is it? Well, that depends on which side of the equation you're on. When I listen to CNN, I'm just amazed at what they actually believe is truth. And whether or not they believe it doesn't really matter, because they project the image that they do believe it, and therefore their followers, their listeners, take it as gospel. My sisters are among them. They think that Trump is a criminal, that he colluded with the Russians, even though to date we don't have any real evidence. All we have is innuendo and uh, fake news, but they will say that's not fake news, that what we're saying is fake news. So now the Germans, especially Angela Merkel, who, in my opinion, is a neo Nazi thinly veiled. She's infuriated by criticisms of her immigration policy and rather less so by Russian disinformation. So she's endorsed a new law, and I can't even pronounce the name under which it goes, under which the social media companies must take down posts that constitute manifestly unlawful hate speech. Who defines this? And fake news from their sites within 24 hours of a complaint or failure to do so can result in a fine up to 50 million euros. That's a lot of cash. That's 60 million bucks. Fake news is criminally fake if it amounts to an insult or malicious gossip or defamation of character, including defamation of a religious or ideology group sufficiently serious to contravene German law. Well, what's the law say? This is what I want to know. And who makes the law? Well, certainly it's not you and me. It's not the rest of the world. It's the German government. So this is a big deal. So Berlin's trying to scare social media, and social media is going to fight back. And how do you control social media? Uh, Well, do you say to... Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, that now you have to have a cadre of people who oversee everything that goes on there. Well, all of a sudden, they're going to start pulling off more than just what would be offensive to Angela Merkel and the uh, government in Berlin. Now, we know that Singapore has no free speech and that they go at delivered online falsehoods. Basically it's a dictatorship and it's from what I understand, a beautiful city state and clean and crime rate is almost zero, but there are pretty harsh penalties when you do get into trouble. If you vandalize, you may end up getting caned with a bamboo rod. And if you spit on the sidewalk, you may find yourself in a, uh, re-education class to learn how to behave in public and about public safety and security and health. And of course we know the Russians aren't going to allow anything. Brussels is following suit. The Belgians, which is by the way, where NATO is homed, is is uh, domiciled. And so they're saying that news has to be verifiable. Who's verifying it? Uh, you know, it's, it, it's just amazing to me. And uh, by the way, even the Australians tried to pass law. I don't know if they got it through uh, a year or two ago, outlawing hate speech. And, and this is one of our closest allies and supposedly one of the people with freedom of speech. Now, I can tell you that the, the Canadians, they think they have free speech, but they don't. And when they come down here, they see a different world. And you say, well, how do you know this, Dr. Bill? Well, because I travel up there. And, you know, if you want to get Fox News, you have to pay extra, whereas CNN is part of the basic cable package. So when you go to a hotel in Toronto, you don't have Fox News because they're not going to pay for it. They're not going to pay for it, not because it costs so much, but because they don't want that hate speech of Fox News that they consider hate speech out there on their airways. Okay, so the fact-checkers all too frequently show show themselves to be biased, and we know this, and this goes back to antiquity, and the Romans uh, asked the question, who's watching the watchers? And this is true today. And, And this is what I have been saying, that if you have limitation on speech, as most of the world does, then who's watching the people that are limiting the speech? And and this becomes a problem, especially in countries like Malaysia, which are primarily Muslim. And I don't know if they've changed their policies, but when I spoke about this several years ago, you could only vote if you were a Muslim in Malaysia. You can still only vote for your representatives in parliament in Pakistan, if you're a Muslim. The Hindus have non-voting representatives, but then you've got a Muslim government that is deciding what is acceptable freedom of speech and what is not. Well, guess what? If the Muslim government is following strict Sharia law, there ain't a whole lot that's going to get out there that's true free speech. And if you say something negative against Muhammad, you may find yourself on death row in Pakistan as one Christian woman did. She was finally released after a decade, just within the past several months by the Pakistani Supreme Court, no doubt under pressure from the United States and Western allies. So what does it matter if you say Muhammad has a snotty nose? I mean, what does this have to do with the price of soybeans, for God's sakes? Nothing. But it's an emotional issue for a lot of people around the world. And emotions taint freedom of speech. And, you know, I have tried to say to some of the nationally syndicated guys who are decrying the fake news that, look, Uh, You can get yourself all worked up in a lather about this, but we don't want to stop the fake news. Let it come. We do want to counter it. We don't want to step on freedom of speech. Let them say what they want. If they want to say that that Trump is a no-good, low-down, dirty, rotten son of a mother, well, let them say it. Because it's true. He is the son of a mother. Is he low down and dirty rotten? Well, those are adjectives and adverbs, uh, modifiers that have been placed there, and they're subjective. They're subjective. And we have to remember that whatever we say and do, there's an element of subjectivity involved in it, unless it's pure research. And even then, we have to be careful. We have to monitor our researchers and make sure that there's no bias in their research. And uh, this is another big problem. Now Macron's coming out. He's the uh, president of uh, France. And by the way, he's in deep doo-doo over there right now because of the yellow shirts and their protests against the rising taxes on on gas and other uh, commodities. And we cannot be complacent here in America. The First Amendment... Which is a, a very elastic has been reshaped over the over the past two and a half centuries to meet the needs of the times and the and the politics and it's been suspended during World War One and World War Two people were arrested for uh, anything that would seem to support the Germans uh, for promoting Germany or fascism or nazism and it's understandable in a time of war that you're you're in a crisis and the president has unusual powers and and even abraham lincoln suspended the writ of habeas corpus and uh, some of the amendments during the civil war the supreme court went against him on a few things but the first amendment is somewhat elastic and its protections are not absolute but there's They're certainly worth fighting for. And we don't want to see the First Amendment go into reverse, nor do we want to see the Second Amendment. Intellectual fashions change, people change, uh, the times change, the knowledge base changes. The means of transmitting news change. And so social media now is a big player. And there are those who don't like that social media seemingly allows almost anything on on their websites, but that's not true. Of course, there is uh, uh, censorship, and there seems to be more of the conservative and right-wings than of the liberals and the left-wings, and we don't want it of either side. We don't want it of either side. And it also takes into account how we define news. What is news? It is news that Aunt Harriet's Dog died, is that news? Well, I mean, if you post it on your Facebook site, it's news to somebody. It's news to all the relatives who knew a little little poo-poo doggy that Aunt Harriet had and that she loved and that everybody loved to see pictures of on her website. So this is news. So partisan news is news. Personal news is news. It's all news. And there's a lot of fake news out there. There's a lot of nonsense that people put out there. And there are a lot of pranksters. And there are a lot of people who want disinformation out there, whether they're the left wing or the Russians or the Chinese or the Trump administration. Who knows? So all of this has to be taken into account. And here's the thing. We cannot allow the world to slip back into an era of communist or fascist censorship of the press. And so we have to fight this desire to censor what people perceive as fake news because fake news is different to everybody. Hey, we're big boys and girls. Put it out there. We'll sort it out. We're not idiots. We'll figure it out. You know, my son, he reads all this stuff and he says, Dad, You don't know what you're talking about. Look at this. Look at what Trump Trump said and did. And, you know, I try to say, well, go look at this website. And it's going to take time because he's young, but he'll learn. He'll get it. Well, we're close to the end of the show. Joe, thanks for being with me today, buddy. Hope you had a good time, everybody. Love you guys, and I will see you next week. I am Dr. Bill, your Radio MD.